it is well. I love that passage where Jesus was out in the sea and he was tired and he was sleeping and the disciples were rowing across the Sea of Galilee and the storm was coming and wow, it swept in so quickly and they thought they were going to drown and Jesus was sleeping in peace in the front of the boat. And they woke him up and said, don't you care that we're going to drown? And he basically said, why are you worried? And he told the storm to be still and the waves ceased and the wind stopped. And they realized who he was, that he had power over the wind and the waves, over the weather, the elements. Wow. Amazing, amazing story about faith and trusting God. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first six verses, actually. Um, the, the passage that we deal with actually goes through 12 verses, but we're going to look at the second half next week. But I want to tell you a little story, and, and I'll tell you it's not a story about how the uh, Blazer, or the Warriors threw the game last night. Uh, but it's about two young men. Uh, they were the king's sons in England, and probably not the present because we really don't have a king there right now. Uh, but he had two sons in the way the story went, and the first one was had a title, and he was the Prince of Wales, and the second one had the title, the Duke of Kent. And uh, they were kind of inseparable. They spent a lot of time together. One day they were playing at the park together, and uh, the prince, the older of the two, said, you know, I, he was looking at one of the police officers there, uh, Bobby's, I guess, in, in England, and he looked at him and he said, you know, I bet you... Every police officer that is overweight is bald. In fact, I will bet you oh, so much money. He had it figured out how much he wanted to do. It was uh, going to be a shilling. And he said, I'll bet you a shilling that every overweight police officer is bald. The other one says, you're on. We'll, we'll do this. We'll bet on it. And so they were there at the park and they waited for a police officer to come by, and finally one rather portly police officer came by, and they looked at him, and the problem was he was wearing one of those helmets. You know, they, they have those helmets, and, and he was wearing a helmet, and they could not tell if he was bald or not. And so they couldn't come to the conclusion of who won this bet, and about that time, kind of a scruffy little guy came by, a kid oh, their age or so, and the prince said to him, he says, I'll give you four pence if you knock that helmet off his head and he said oh yeah I'll do that so he picked up a rock and he threw it at the police officer hit him right in the helmet went flying off and sure enough he was bald that's exactly right and so they were divvying, divvying up the funds one getting what he was to receive from the bet and they were paying the young man his amount and police officer walked over and he looked at them and he said so what are your names the oldest one looked at him, and he says, well, I'm the Prince of Wales. He looked at the other one. The second one looked at him, and he says, well, I am, uh, I'm the Duke of Kent. The police officer was a little frustrated right now. He really wasn't happy with this. He didn't really recognize the boys. And, and so he said, you're both charged with insulting a person of the law and lying to avoid arrest. And he looked at the scruffy little kid, and he said, and what's your name? And uh, he kind of, the kid 
elbowed the other two boys, and he said, don't worry, I won't let you down. And then he looked at the police officer, and he said, I am the Archbishop of Canterbury. Here's the question. Why didn't the police officer or the other young man recognize the two royals? Why didn't they accept what they said? Well, I'll give you one reason. I believe because they were not living worthy of their calling. They were not living worthily of who they were. Princes don't do that. They don't go having rocks thrown at police officers. And I think uh, because they weren't recognized, Christians are sometimes the same way. Uh, There are certain expectations in terms of how we will walk, how we will live. And uh, it may be among other Christians. It may be within the community in which we live. Uh, for instance, if a, if a guy goes to work with a bunch of guys and they sit around telling rather crude jokes and the language isn't good and the way they talk about women isn't good and something comes up about Christianity and the man that's standing there says, well, I'm a Christian. And there may be a response of, you are? Because he is not living according to that standard. Well, as Paul comes into 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, remember he was giving thanks for the Thessalonian church because they lived according to what they had learned from Paul and they were demonstrating love and they were imitating him, it says, and they were imitating then the Lord and growing in their faith. But as we come into 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul's testimony was in question. Uh, It was kind of like in the church of Galatia. Remember that there were Judaizers that came there that uh, were telling the people of the Galatian churches that Paul really wasn't an authority. He really wasn't an apostle. His ministry really wasn't real. And they were undermining everything he said. Well, I think that's kind of what was happening here in the third church of Thessalonica as well. And that's why Paul at this point, needs to prove who he is and why he was there. And I want to go back to verse 12, actually 11 and 12 quickly, to give you the purpose for why Paul had come and what he was preaching. In verse 11 it says, Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. It says he wanted to teach them that they might walk worthy, that their lives might demonstrate who they are in Jesus Christ. Over in Colossians chapter 1, in the uh, ninth and 10th verses, it says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding and here it is verse 10 so that you will walk worthy of the lord to please him in every respect in all respects and so there's that aspect of walking worthy and paul was sharing his life and he was sharing his ministry showing them that he was worthy of the lord kind of a A little bit difficult passage this morning as I was studying it. Because it's really Paul talking about his life and why he is an apostle and why he is acceptable before God. And and sometimes you look at these passages as you study them, or I do, and I say, okay, how does this relate? How does it 
relate to the people in, in the congregation this morning, the people that are going to be here, the family of Brentwood Bible Fellowship. And so much of it doesn't deal so much with the people that Paul was dealing with, but rather with Paul. And I had to come back and say, wow, Lord, you're talking to me more than you are necessarily the people I'm going to be preaching to this morning. What is my life like? But it gives you an idea what a pastor should be like. Who, who is that individual that will be preaching to you? It gives you an idea of what the individual on television or on the radio that you listen to, are they really valid in terms of their ministries? Are they valid, valid in terms of what they're sharing? Are, are, are they individuals that you look up to? Or maybe you turn off. So as we look at it this morning, we're going to be looking at Paul's life, in fact, the next couple of weeks, uh, and how he ministered to these people. And he begins in verse two, or chapter 2, verse 1, he says, As you know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. It wasn't empty. There was a purpose for why we came. And then in verse 2, he says, After you were, we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God with much opposition. And let me just go back. We talked about it a little bit, but let me just go back over the history because it, it tells what Paul's attitude was like when he came there. Uh, number one, he... Uh, <laughs> he just come from Philippi. Philippi was the first city that he went to when he came to Greece. It was the first European city. And there at Philippi, he had a warm welcome. There were people that followed him, accepted the Lord, uh, received Jesus Christ, and he was really positive. But there were all those, so those who were negative. And ultimately, Paul and Silas were beaten. They were imprisoned. They were humiliated. Remember, we talked about that last week. And so this is what Paul's coming from. Now, it's interesting, after they were in prison, there was a great earthquake, and they came out, and, and the jailer and his family came to know Jesus Christ. They were all baptized, and they fed him, and the magistrates, it said, sent that morning down to jail and said, release the men and tell them to be on their way. And Paul and Silas said, no way, we're not leaving. Said, we're Roman citizens. You need to come down and tell us. You need to come down basically and apologize for what you did. And so the magistrates came down and they begged them to leave. So Paul left under some difficult circumstances. And when he came to Thessalonica, the question is, how does that affect your ministry? <laughs> if you just shared with somebody and they shut you down and they were rather negative towards you, do you feel like going out and sharing again? Probably not. I think the tendency would have been for Paul to come in there and uh, maybe say, well, I ought to tone it down a little bit. Maybe I shouldn't be quite so outspoken. Uh, maybe I shouldn't call them all sinners right off the bat. Maybe I, I shouldn't point out all of their problems. But that wasn't Paul. You see, in, in verse 2, it says, verse 1, that his ministering there was not in vain. It wasn't empty. That's what the word vain means. It wasn't without benefit. There were those who came to know the Lord. There were those whose lives were changed because of the fact that Paul came. It says, but after we had already suffered in Philippi, we'd been mistreated in Philippi, as you know. And I think it's, it's interesting because here these people were undermining Paul in Thessalonica saying, well, he really is an apostle and his ministry isn't true and it's full of errors. Uh, 
Paul said, you know what we were like. He related several times back in this book to, you know, you were there, you saw it. It says, as you know, we had boldness. That means courage. It means confidence in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amongst much opposition. And, you know, I believe as Christians, we may not all be out on street corners uh, witnessing. In fact, probably most of us wouldn't feel very comfortable doing that. Others do. But we need to be bold in our faith, just like Paul was. He was bold. He had courage. Uh, That's the idea of this word, that he was courageous. He was confident in his message. I uh, went back in, in the scripture. There's a number of passages that just talk about the idea that we're to be confident, that we're to be bold in our faith. Second uh, Timothy 1.7, it says he did not give us a spirit of timidity. Paul was, or, or, or Timothy was being a little bit timid because of his age. Paul said, don't worry about the fact that people are older than you. You're, you've got a message. Uh, it says don't be timid. Didn't give us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love. And then it says a sound mind or self-discipline. It means that you're logical in terms of what you do. You think through it. Uh, you go back to Joshua 1.9. It says, I have, have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous, to be bold, Joshua? Don't tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. There should be a boldness. Isaiah 41.10, it says, Don't fear or be dismayed, or do not fear, do not anxiously look about you, for I am your Lord. I am the Lord your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so we look at those, and we realize, as all through Scripture, there is this idea that when we're serving the Lord, when we're doing His will, there needs to be that holy boldness. Not a fear. So let me ask you. If you're a Christian, you have a relationship with God. What are you afraid of? What may paralyze you in some way today? What in life do you struggle with? Is it other people that are unkind and unloving? Is it... Your financial situation? Is it a health situation? What, what is it that tends to paralyze you and keep you from moving ahead? I believe as Christians, if we are living in Christ, if we are allowing Christ to control our lives, we realize that it's the grace of God that makes a difference, and we move out boldly. We face the issues in our life in the power of God, not in our own power. It's like when Paul said that he had a thorn in the flesh and he prayed three times for that thorn that God would remove it. And God said, I'm not going to remove it. It keeps you humble. But I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you enough grace to deal with it. My grace is sufficient for you. Whatever it is, my grace is sufficient. And so as Paul was coming there, coming out of a difficult situation, he had been beaten, he had been in prison, he had been embarrassed. And it would have been very easy, I think, for Paul to kind of stand back and not be very aggressive in his message. And yet, in this case, he spoke out boldly. 
And he sets an example for us. And you know, as, as we share our lives, if we are not bold in our faith, and now we are not bold in how we deal with things, uh, we, we don't have an effect. I, I, I think of a dad or a mom with their kids. And we can verbalize our faith. But if we don't live it out boldly, our kids pay more attention to how we live than what we say. I believe for Paul, probably the greatest message he had was not the spoken one. You know, I think of when he was in Athens at Areopagus and he was preaching about the unknown God. I think, what a message that must have been. Or some of the other messages he had. But possibly the most effective message he had was his life supporting what he was saying. It's true, we have to say what we believe, but there needs to be a support in how we live. And if our life doesn't display that, kind of like those two young boys, people don't pick up or believe it. And so there is a boldness that we should have in our faith. And it makes a difference in terms of how we teach. This was certainly true for pastors. You know, I think pastors... Number one, they shouldn't have a wimpy message where they just kind of don't make an issue of what sin is or how our lives are to be lived or what God expects of us. But our lives also have to demonstrate that. It isn't just for pastors. It's also Sunday school teachers and Bible study leaders and uh, any other ministry you have. If, if you're going to be one who teaches a ministry, it needs to be reflected in your life and in our lives. And that was really something I picked up. I, I, I've thought about pastors that I've known in the past who have been very, very good pastors, excellent preachers, excellent ministers, but then they have an indiscretion. And do you know what they're remembered for? Their indiscretion. Their failure. And so our lives make the difference. It's how we live. Well, as Paul was living, we go down to verse 4, and we see that basically this first few verses, these first six verses, have to do with this fourth verse. It says, but just as we have been approved by God, that means tested. Paul was not a new convert. He was not one just starting out, but his life had been tested. We've been entrusted with the gospel. Uh, God says, Paul, here it is. It wasn't Paul's gospel, it was God's. It was Jesus Christ. But he was entrusted with it. That's a steward. Anybody ever given you a responsibility to do something for them? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and you have the freedom to do whatever it is. You have the resources, you have their resources, but it's not your material. It's theirs. That's a, that's a steward, and he was entrusted with the gospel the good news, so we speak, not as pleasing men, Paul says. It isn't an issue to please individuals, to please men, but we're to please God who examines our hearts. And so Paul's goal in life was to see people come to know Jesus Christ, but beyond that, it was to please God, not men. And that should be where our lives are. It doesn't mean we don't come together to encourage one another. We do says in Hebrews that not to forsake your assembling together, but to come together and encourage each other. But boy, I hope you're thinking about how's God looking at me right now? 
How's God viewing my actions? How's God viewing my attitude? How's God viewing my motivations? How's God observing me? Because that's really where it is. We're serving him. If we're his children, we're to be serving him. If we're in the ministry, uh, which is where I was going with this, I, I, I had to realize that, yeah, we're all called to be stewards, and we're all given a responsibility, and we're all to minister according to the will of God. And God watches us. He's aware of what we're doing. Let's go back up to verse 3. It gives three parts to Paul's testimony. He says, our exhortation, our encouragement, our calling you out with the gospel does not come from number one, error. And I would have to say today, when you are sharing with someone else the gospel, or when a pastor, you're listening to him, one of the big issues that you need to look for is, is he true to the word of God? In fact, if you're on television, you're watching someone on television, and he never opens the word of God, you may just want to say, hey, I've got a good motivational speaker, but he's probably not doing very much for the kingdom of God. And is he true to it? Paul said, there's no error in my ministry. The things that I'm teaching, you're going to find there isn't error. Go back and check it out. It, it coincides with the word of God. It coincides with the Old Testament. It coincides with the ministry of Jesus and the other apostles. Is there error? Paul said, there's no error in my ministry. Then that's his message. And then he goes on and he talks about not only his message, but he says, there's no impurity. Impurity comes from a word that simply means sensuality. It's his manner of life. No immorality. No playing around in a negative way, in a way that's not pleasing to God. It even goes to the idea of sensuality, of, of no just wanting to get rich, and we come back to that later, just using this to, to bait people to gain things for themselves. And so when you look at the lifestyle of this individual, it's, it's a life that's pure. It's a life that's holy. God said, be holy as I am holy. Might your life be set apart. And we each need to look at our lives, not only the message we share, but the life. Because if the life does not go along with the message, there's nothing there. As I said, I was looking at this from the eyes of a pastor and realized that it's great to stand up on Sunday morning and preach the message, to prepare a message from the Word of God, to pray that the Holy Spirit leads you. But if the life does not coincide with that then you become ineffective if you're a Sunday school teacher the same thing's true if you lead a small group and you have a Bible study the same thing's true does your life go along with the message if the message is without error or do people look at your life and say he's not where he ought to be Probably the, the greatest thing there is that you can't really preach the message if your life is not in tune with what it says. And then it goes on, and it says you shouldn't be preaching by way of deceit. That's your methodology. How do you get the ministry out? Down in verse 5, he, he says, uh, for we never came with flattering speech. <laughs> Have you ever been around a, a silver-tongued salesman? You know, maybe you go to buy a car or you're looking at real estate or 
uh, any other item. You walk into a store and immediately they come alongside of you. How can I help you? And then pretty soon they're giving you all of the wonderful details about this, whatever it is you're buying, and you realize that what they're saying probably isn't true. And they begin to tell you, you seem like such a wise buyer. You have it together, and they begin to flatter you because they know flattery gets you everything. We like to be told that we're smart and intelligent and good-looking and okay, and we got it together and all of those things. And he said, we didn't come to you with flattery. I didn't come as a smooth-talking salesman. I didn't come to merely entertain you with my speech. You don't have to worry about that, folks. A lot of pastors around that are very good in terms of speaking. But we always have to stop and say, but what is the foundation of the message? What is the purpose? What are they doing? So he didn't come with flattering speech. He didn't come... And listen to this next one with pretense of or pretext for greed. God is the witness. He didn't come to get rich of them, off of them. Uh, he wasn't preaching a, a get rich quick scheme. The uh, idea of an improper gospel. You know, I've, I've heard people preach through the word of God and say, if you do this and this and this, God's going to make you wealthy. It's called a prosperity gospel. It's all about that. You know, if you're living the way God wants you to, you're going to be wealthy. And I look back and I realize that Paul, at the time that he was writing these books, wasn't very wealthy. And Peter wasn't very wealthy. And the issue isn't how much we gain materially. The issue is... How are we living in our relationship with God? Our blessing is going to come. Sometimes it will come down here, but definitely it's going to be an eternity based on how we live. It says God's watching. Paul is saying, I serve the Lord. I serve God, not man. I'm not here to please just men. I'm here to please God. I'm not, it's not about a pretense of greed. Um, they just... I don't want to veer off too far. Let me just say this. When a pastor comes to a church, he doesn't come so much as an employee. He comes to serve the Lord. That should be his primary purpose. Now, the church gives him a salary. But it doesn't matter how much the salary is because in serving the Lord, he should do the very best he can, whether it's a great deal or or not very much. And so he is there to minister. He also is there to do what God called him to do. If you go back to Acts chapter 6, in, in the church there, there were women that weren't being taken care of. And you know, the people came to the apostles and said, we got a lot of women here that aren't being taken care of, and, and you guys need to kind of take care of this. 
And uh, Peter and the apostles said, that's not what God called us to do right now. He says, you call seven men, spiritual individuals, to oversee this ministry because what we're going to do is continue to study the Word of God, teach the Word of God, and pray. That was the purpose that we have right there. And so a pastor needs to know what his role is. A lot of times people have different things that they think the pastor's to do. And, and you know what they do is they move the pastor away from doing the very things God called him to do, to be that person of oversight and leader and spiritual guide within the church. Should he go be, visit people when they're sick? Absolutely. But that's probably not what you pay him for. He should do that simply because he cares and loves people. And he ministers to them. Uh, somebody calls, Pastor, you need to go visit this person. And, and I, I think the pastor should go, but maybe that person that's concerned should be the first one to go. There's work to be done. Pastor can get out there and he get his hands dirty just as well as anybody, but he shouldn't be the only one. That's the job of the whole church, not just one person. We are here to serve the Lord and the priority is to do what he calls the pastor to do. Now, what's the responsibility of the congregation? To make sure the pastor is cared for. To make sure that his needs are met, the needs of his family are met, whether it's present or future. How do we take care of our pastor? How do we minister to the needs he has? It isn't even so much a salary as it is caring for the needs. Now, there's going to be a salary... But really a pastor, and I know when pastors go to churches, one of the first things they have to do is negotiate their salary. I think one of the saddest things I've heard people say in the past is, well, what do you think we can get him for? It's a wrong attitude if you want a pastor to serve you. It's what can we give him to meet his needs. Talks about that back in 1, Peter, or 1 Timothy 5, that he is to, to receive a wage that is meets the needs that he has. So it is that the congregation meets his needs. He comes and ministers for the Lord first. Because when he becomes a people pleaser, that's when he gets in trouble. Has to be for the Lord. And that's really what Paul was talking about here when he got into this. And then we finish it up in verse 6. It says, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you, those we came to minister to, or from others, (laughs) even though based on our position, based on the fact that as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. As we get into verse 9, it talks about the fact that Paul said we work night and day. He was a tent maker. He, he was bivocational. Now, I'll tell you what, he was getting a salary from the church at Philippi. Not a salary, but an offering. They were sending money to him, but... The church at Thessalonica wasn't doing that. If you're a church planter, you don't walk into the community and say, hey, i got a GoFundMe page out here. I'd like you to help me while I try to share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ. You go in and, and you don't have expectations. It's like during the offering. God has made provisions for how the church is to function. He gives us direction in giving. And I believe that's important. That's how the church family helps to support the church. It's what God teaches us. 
But I don't believe the visitor or first-timer, the one that's just coming in and sitting here, should feel that they have to pay for the message. They need to enjoy the service. They need to be edified. They need to be ministered to. Rather than expecting when the offering plate comes by that, wow, i got to dig in and see if I've got five bucks or ten bucks or whatever I've got. Paul didn't go with the idea of getting rich. That should never be the attitude of a pastor that I'm going to become wealthy or have a lucrative position. There are some pastors that have, praise the Lord. Some very good pastors have become very wealthy, but on the other hand, there's an awful lot that haven't. But their purpose isn't to become rich. It's to become ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the focus. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his ascension into heaven, and the fact that he's coming back, and everything that means to us today. That's where it is. And so I would ask you today, and I have to ask myself as as a pastor, having looked at this, because it was really a passage, as I said, that spoke to me. Um, Am I walking worthy of the calling? which God has called me. Verse 12. Are you walking worthy of the calling to which God has called you? If you minister, are you ministering worthy for the calling? Or are you just going through the motions and doing the job that has to be done? It's got to go beyond that. Because you see, if we really want to be blessed by it, it's, it's our relationship with God and how we serve, not simply what others think of us. And when a pastor begins to worry about job security and what do people think and what are people saying, his ministry will deteriorate and will not be effective. It's only as he's in a right relationship with God and serving in that capacity. Let's have a word of prayer, shall we? Father, I look at this passage today and and I have to admit, Father, that In some ways, Paul is giving his personal account of what it was like when he was there in Thessalonica, what it was like when he ministered to the people of the Thessalonian church. He said, as you know, you know, you know what it was like, you know what I was doing. And he said his ministry wasn't void because there were those who came to know Jesus Christ. There were those who grew in that relationship even during the short time he was there. A solid church was established. But it was because Paul understood that his life was lived, his message was given to honor and glorify you. He was serving you first and foremost, Father. And everything else was secondary. Might we understand how true that is for our lives. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this message. Thank you for the book of Thessalonians, as to the Thessalonians, because I know that as we get through it a little further, it begins to talk about what our future is going to be like and when Jesus is coming back and what our expectations can be. And I just want to thank you, Father, for what you give us in this great little book, these two little books that we have together and the message that is there. Thank you for Paul and his faithfulness, and his boldness, and the fact that he was courageous, 
And might we also have that same kind of courage as we live our lives in Christ rather than just in the world. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.